Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. Here's Pastor Dwight. You know, if you only worship from 9 o'clock to 10.15 on Sunday morning, then you're going to come up very short of God's design for your life. If you only worship for those 15 minutes at the beginning or end of your day, what you might call your quiet time, some of you have time in the morning, some of you might do that later in the evening before bed. If you only worship for those 15 minutes, then you're going to miss the intent of God for your life. If you head out the door on Monday morning for work or school, and you don't enter your workplace with a mindset that I'm here to give it my all, I'm here to do my uh, my job to the best of my ability. I'm here to love and invest in the people I work with. I'm here to do things with truthfulness and integrity. And ultimately, I'm here to reflect Jesus Christ and honor the living God. If that is not your mindset, if that is not your commitment, then you are daily missing the opportunity and calling to worship God with all of your life. It's the same approach and the same commitment when you're on the sideline coaching your kids if you're a coach of a sports team or you're in the stands rubbing shoulders with other parents. You're cheering them on, watching, rooting. If you're at the grocery store, if you're out to dinner with friends, if you're eating dinner with your own family around the table, if you're at the school board meeting, if you're serving here at church, wherever you are, is an opportunity to worship, to honor God, to exalt Him in the way that you live, the way that you speak, the way that you relate to other people. Worship used to be, before Jesus came, used to be geographical. And what, my, what I mean by that, it was primarily limited to a, a place and a time. So it might have happened uh, in the temple or at the tabernacle. Before the temple, there, there was the tabernacle, the tent that Moses used to meet God, and then the, the children of Israel set up the tabernacle uh, to worship him. Uh, might been, they, might, they used to meet God at a place in, in, the, in the Old Testament, a place called Shiloh. Let's go down to Shiloh. That's where God's presence is. That's where we know we can meet God at Shiloh. Or at, in Jerusalem, they would make their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, sometimes they would come several times a year for festivals and they would come into the city and come to the temple and they would worship God. Now, after Jesus and after he sends his Holy Spirit, worship happens and can happen wherever we go. Because now we are the temple. The Bible says we are the temple of the living God. Second Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 16. And he lives within us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Every place, all day long, all week long, we have the privilege and joy of demonstrating that he is our greatest treasure. And we can live lives of worship wherever our feet take us. So it's not just the sanctuary. Although I love the sanctuary, this is an awesome time. It's an important time. It's a significant time. 
when the people of God gather together to sing and to pray and to declare his word. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not just about this hour. There's so much more that God has intended for us in terms of our lives of worship. And so this morning, another truth that we're going to, as we move through this series on worship this month, in this foundation of worship, this heart of worship, is to begin to see all of life as worship. All of it. So if you have your Bible this morning, Romans chapter 12 is where we're headed. A couple of, just a couple of verses, two verses that are packed full of truth. And so if you have chapter 12 of, of Romans, this is, of course, Romans is a, is a, is a masterpiece in terms of all of God's word is, but the book of Romans in terms of our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves and our position before God, who we are in Christ, Romans is that. And so chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge, I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, excuse me, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, as you read those verses, it all starts with the mercy of God. The, the, the ground for Paul's appeal, he says, I urge you, brothers, sisters, I urge you, the ground of his appeal is God's mercy. For 11 chapters, we're coming to chapter 12, but for 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. In fact, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners, people like me, people like you. In fact, if you go into the book of Romans, you know it's so rich, but Romans chapter 5, verse 8, what does the Bible say? It's, Paul says through the Holy Spirit, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The great declaration of mercy, that we didn't deserve it, we're still caught in our sin. We're still living in rebellion to God, but he came for us and he loved us and he sent his son for us to give his life. Then in Romans chapter eight, verse one, more mercy, because the Bible says what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you're no longer under the condemnation of God. The judgment of God has now been lifted, placed upon his shoulders, and you are now free and justified and forgiven. So these declarations come again and again throughout the book of Romans. So the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for us, in justifying us freely by faith, in sending us his life-giving spirit, and in making us his children. Everywhere, mercy. Everywhere, mercy, mercy, mercy. 
J.B. Phillips. I like how he translates that because uh, the NIV says, in view of God's mercy, J.B. Phillips says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. Have your wise eyes wide open. Now, I'm going to encourage you, and you might not be able to do this now. Probably this is an afternoon. While it's going to be cold and blowing still a little bit this afternoon, you might, if you're out, great, but if you're in, whatever happens this week, you know, as the week unfolds, a tremendous exercise for all of us. I did this actually uh, even yesterday. Uh, review the mercies of God in your life. Take a couple minutes to think about all the mercies of God in your life. Moments, relationships, choices, failures, victories, provision, how God has woven all of those mercies together to bring about his purposes in your life. Think about that. Consider that. Take stock of his mercy in view of God's mercy. I was thinking about all the things in my, in my own life, Grow, growing up in the family that I was privileged to grow up in with parents who loved Jesus Christ and grandparents and people who encouraged me in my faith as a young boy. That was a mercy to me. Salvation, that my understanding of Jesus Christ as my Savior happened right here in front of what was then a prayer rail in 1979, in this sanctuary, that I, I was moved in my heart to embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, nine-year-old boy. The church family that I was privileged to grow up in, the protection that God gave me at college. You go off to college and a lot of things can happen. You can wind the road pretty far away from God, but God in his mercy, gave me a heart to stay close. And he protected me through college and all the things that come with college. Then uh, God gave me the mercy of a wife whom I needed and wanted, but a wife who I needed, who God knew would be really good for me. You know, we need helpmates. And she has been a tremendous helpmate to me in so many ways. Four beautiful children. And also a mercy of, for us, even our story, marital struggle. We went through a hard, hard time about mm, 20 years ago. And that was difficult and painful. But then the mercy of restoration and God's grace to us as a couple. And then I would say the mercy of this body. That for all these now 17, going on 18, this 18, 17, 18 years, being able to spend my life invested in this body and you investing in us and together we are accomplishing God's mission in this community. That has been a mercy. And so just take some time in your life to think through how God has been merciful to you because that will fuel your worship, right? In view of God's mercy, how, how do we worship? In view of God's mercy, in light of God's mercy and seeing that in our lives. Your worship starts with God's mercy. Our, our lives are a response to his love and his mercy. So what, is that, what does this worship entail? And here's where we get these two verses together. Uh, first of all, it's our call to be, number one, a living sacrifice. What does he say? Offer your bodies as living 
sacrifices. If you have the ESV, it is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Most sacrifices in the scripture were dead ones. Ever think about that? You know, those bulls, those goats, those lambs, they had their, right? Throat slit. They were, their blood was released. They were placed upon the altar and often the fire would consume their carcasses. So when Paul says, present yourself, he is using a technical term that referred to the Levitical work of the priest in presenting the sacrifice on the altar as an act of worship so that they would be, first of all, the priest presented the offering for himself, his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And so that that offering would be consumed as a sacrifice to God to make them acceptable before a holy God. They could not come into God's presence without a sacrifice. They couldn't be received without a sacrifice. Now, there is a shift in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And so Paul says, present yourself, that is, present your life, your, he says specifically, your body, In other words, the the intent there is take all of me, take all of me, my life, my will, my affections, my desires, everything that makes up me, Lord, I offer to you. I present to you. Paul is talking, excuse me, taking us to the core of the gospel. And actually Peter does as well. And the core of the gospel is that we are a holy priesthood. Peter calls us a royal priesthood. But we are a holy priesthood. We have a high, we have a, we have a great high priest who's gone before us into the heavens. Jesus is our great high priest who now even sits and makes intercession for us. And we are the priests, the priesthood of believers. And so now what God wants is not a dead animal. He wants a living us. It's a very big shift in terms of understanding uh, man's relationship with God from a dead animal to a living us, right? That's huge. Piper says the offering of our bodies is not the, the, the offering of our bodily looks, but our bodily behavior. In the Bible, the body is not, is not significant because of the way it looks, but because of the way it acts. The body is given to us to make visible the beauty of Christ. Why are we here? To make Jesus Christ, to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ through our lives, all of our lives, mind, heart, soul, body, all of us. Paul's blunt reference to our bodies would have sent shockwaves through some of his Greek readers, because the Greeks uh, took a lot of their cues from this uh, ancient uh, historian, ancient philosopher named Plato. Some of you have heard of Plato. So Platonic thought was this, that they regarded the body as an embarrassing encumbrance, something you just had to live with. It was actually, uh, the body is, in, in Platonic thought, is a tomb 
from which the spirit or the soul is trying to escape. It's a tomb. But what the Bible teaches is that our bodies are vitally important because God can use them as a base of operations to accomplish his mission in the world. He uses us and all of us to do that. In fact, if you think about Mary, the mother of Jesus, she, her body became the vessel through which the Son of God is delivered to the world. You think of Moses, this guy who said, I can't talk. I'm not very skilled in speech. God said, don't worry about it. I will go before you. In fact, I'll give you your brother Aaron, but I'm going to make you, Moses, the, the deliverer of my people. You will go before Pharaoh with your stuttering and stammering and yammering. And you will announce and declare my word to those in Egypt. And so God uses the mouth of Moses. God uses the hands of David. Those skillful hands that could work a slingshot and bring down a giant. And those rugged, valiant hands that were skilled in battle. No one could beat David in battle. And David and David's men. So there's the hands of David being used as God's agent. And on and on and on. The, the other New Testament phrase, in fact, it comes in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, where we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, Paul says. Offer yourselves, the parts of your body, to him as instruments of righteousness. In other words, honor God with all of yourself. Honor God with your tongue. And the Bible says a lot about our speech, doesn't it? I mean, just read the book of James if you want a little update and reminder about how important our tongues are, how uh, flames of fire, who can tame it, our tongues. But honoring God with our tongues, honoring God with our eyes, what we look at, honoring God with our ears, with our hands, with our sexuality. We, all of us, belong to him. All of us. And John Stott, great pastor and theologian, author, he said, he said, still today, some Christians feel self-conscious about their bodies. That the body in some circles isn't important. It's only the spirit that matters. And that is actually something called philosophical dualism, which elevates the spirit and diminishes the body. But God created us as a whole. And so even think about the traditional invitation that we make to people uh, when we're talking to them about Christ. We say what? Give your heart to Jesus. Right? I've heard that. I've said that. Give your heart to Jesus. Yes, he wants your heart. But the reality is, here's the better invitation. Give your whole life to Jesus, including your body and the parts of your body. Now, don't miss this, and this is, this is really important. Living sacrifice. We're called to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices have a tendency to want to get off the altar. Dead ones can't. But living sacrifices have a tendency to want to squirm off the altar. When we're presented with something that might be hard, something that might be difficult, 
something we don't quite understand, something God's asking us to do, an act of obedience, an act of surrender. And so we kind of we just roll off of this thing right now. Uh, you know, we, we, we're going to, sometimes we try to find a way to get off of that altar because we don't want to offer everything because it might cost more than we want to pay sometimes. And so there's a reminder of the importance of when we said, when the Bible says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, it means a lot. Before we move on to verse 2, Note, he says in verse 1, your spiritual act of worship. And the word there, it's actually an interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word logikos, L-O-G-I-K-O-S, logikos, which we get our word logic from. And so some, some Bible translations have that as your reasonable act of worship or your rational act of worship. And so this is about the offering of ourselves to God. It is seen as the only sensible, logical, and appropriate response to him in view of his mercy. That's where this leads us, that God has done all this for us. And so because of that, the only reasonable response, the only rational response, the only logikos response is to worship him, is to honor him. I love what Epictetus is a, was a first century Stoic philosopher. Epictetus said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, uh, what is proper to a swan? In fact, he said, I'm a logikos, a rational being, so I must praise God. That's what's appropriate for me as a, as a, as a, as a person created in the image of God to worship him, who's received God's mercy to worship him. And so... The first part of a calling this morning is to be a living sacrifice. The second part here is, is that we are called to be transformed. And how does our transformation happens? As it says there, it happens through the renewing of our minds. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, part of, part of our worship is living out the transformation that comes from being united to Christ. So when you think about worship in your life, part of how you worship God, part of how I worship God, is we live out the change. We live out the new thing. We live out of the new heart. We live out of the renewed mind that God has given us. And in that way, we're honoring our Savior. We're honoring our King. We're exalting the God of truth as we live out that change in our lives. There, in this text here, verse 2, there's an A and there's a B. There's a negative command and there's a positive command. The negative command, if you will, is do not be conformed. Don't be conformed to this world. And so there's the nonconformist language. Did you know that? That Christians were one of the earliest nonconformists. It didn't just start in the 1960s with the hippies, right? We're going way back in time. In fact, if you think about the Christians in the first century, many of them found themselves in the Colosseum facing the lions 
or they found themselves hanging from the Colosseum as human torches. Why? Because they would not conform to Rome's edict that required everyone to say, Caesar is God. Caesar is God. And these early Christians could not say that. We are not going to deny our Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so for that, they gave, they forfeited, many of them forfeited their lives in that first century and beyond. Do not be conformed. God told his people when he was preparing to lead them into the promised land, he said, you must not do as they do. I'm going to take you into this land. There's different people that live there, different cultures, different idols, uh, different practices, different ways of do not do as they do. Do not follow their practices, he said. As followers of Christ, as worshipers of the living God, we are not to fall in with what the world is doing and the way that they're doing it. And so as believers... To not be conformed, God help us to not be motivated by greed. Greed seems to motivate many in the world. We don't want to be motivated by greed. Lord, we don't want to be sleeping around with everybody. To not be conformed in this world, you understand in this sex-saturated culture that we live in, how many people are running here, running there, and everywhere. And so God help us not to be sleeping around with everybody. Help us to not be cutting corners on business deals. When we're engaged in a business transaction, help us to be people of integrity, honesty, truth. Help us not to be continually, continually lying to people to get ahead or to make ourselves look better or to manipulate. So we tell a lie, we tell a lie, we tell a lie, because that's the way the world seems to many times operate. Lie, 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 lie. Help us not to be buying into cancel culture where we eliminate and remove people who don't agree with the party line. Help us not to be living in unforgiveness. When God confronts us with the need to forgive, Lord, help us to enter that thing and to forgive like we have been forgiven. Help us not to live in bitterness, to not be led by our anger and our grievances in a culture that is increasingly led by anger and grievances. Do not be conformed. J.B. Phillips, I like his, again, his translation. Do, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And said so exactly what the world tries to do to us every single day, squeeze us into its mold. And so the question that I have for you is, why do we conform to the world? Why do we conform to the world? And the, big, the, the, the clear answer is this four-letter word, fear. Fear. What will people say? What will they think of me? How will they treat me? Will they reject me? In essence, God is exhorting us, don't be motivated by fear. Be motivated by the fear of me, not the fear of the world, the fear of other people. 
Don't make decisions based on what the crowd is doing, what they are running to, because the crowd will always be running somewhere. There will always, always be something the crowd is running toward. A new thing, a new thought, a new idea, a new... And there's, there's always a crowd running to check it out. And, and don't be like that running to... You run to me. You want to you you live? Train, run to me. Come to me. Hmm. So that's the negative command. And the positive command is to be transformed. And the, the, the original word there is a word that's metamorphe, metamorpho. Metamorpho sounds like, does it sound like something? It sounds like what? Metamorphosis. So we get the word metamorphosis. You know, when that caterpillar turns into that butterfly, there's a significant change, right? A fundamental change. A change of transformation of character and conduct, moving from the standards and ways of the world into the image of Christ himself. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what Paul says is a part of our worship, living out that transformation. And how does that metamorphosis take place? By the renewing of your mind. And the focus, please note this, the focus is not first on getting the outside of the cup that is your life cleaned up. A lot of times in Christian circles, we focus a lot on the outside. And what does it look like? And what does he look like? And what does she look like? That's not the focus. The focus is on getting the inside of the cup, the inside of our lives, renewed and transformed. And that comes from a new mind. And here's the thing. The, re the renewed mind doesn't just think clearly. This isn't just about right thinking, but it's also about right valuing. We assess things more truly. We value things more accurately. We approve things more strongly. We treasure things more passionately. And Piper says this, this is utterly relevant to our daily lives because 95% of the things that we do during the day, we do without any extended logical reflection. We just act. We just respond. We act spontaneously out of what Paul calls in Ephesians 4.23, the spirit of the mind that is in us. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of our heart, we act. We think the things that come out, they come out of the abundance of our heart. And so renewed mind, a renewed mind is crucial to living in a way that honors and exalts God. It is, in fact, part of our worship. And why is our mind renewed? So we can test and approve what God's will is. That's what it says, right? You finished the, the verse there? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Then the outcome, you will, you, will, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that is really one of the great pursuits of our life, right? Because I know most of you, most of you, you want to know God's will. You pray, Lord, show me your will. We seek him as we're making decisions in our lives, big decisions, sometimes little decisions. Lord, what is your will in this thing? 
in this matter, in this situation, in this issue, in this relationship, in this whatever this is? What is your will? Well, the Bible says we can actually discern and test and approve God's will when our minds are being renewed, when we're being transformed and the mind is being renewed and we're being changed more into the image of Christ. And so we're able to better understand and, uh, and test and approve the will of God in that process. That's a beautiful thing. And here's the thing. The, the renewed mind treasures and cherishes the will of God first and foremost because it treasures and cherishes God. You want to know his will. Why? Because you love him. You want to know his will. Why? Because you treasure him above all. So I want to know your will in this thing more than anything else because I, I, I love you more than anything else. That's worship. That's worship. So our hearts go up and then Lord, help us to move and to test and approve your will as our minds are being renewed. So look across the span of your life this morning. Are you viewing all of your life as worship? It's not just this hour, hour and 15 minutes that we spend in the sanctuary. And it's not just the 15 minutes you spend when your devotional time in the morning or at night. Those are important. Amen, amen, and amen. But it's beyond that. It's all of our living sacrifice, offering our bodies, all of us to the Lord. And then the thing, don't be conformed, don't be squeezed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God, help us in that. Help us to understand that this morning in our lives. Where are we at? What does our worship look like? What do our lives look like? Because I know, Lord, as you look at us, it goes way well beyond what happens here in this place on a Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to our latest sermon. Join us throughout January as we continue to explore worship. In the meantime, connect with us online. Visit our website at provchurch.net or check out our Facebook at Prof Church Life. Until next time. <laughs>